0: Well, I've been accused of a lot of things. One time I was uh, accused of being a hellfire and brimstone preacher. And I guess if the shoe fits, wear it. Uh, Certainly I wouldn't classify myself that way. But in today's case, I guess that I should. Because we're going to be in Revelation chapter 8. Revelation chapter 8 today. And I'm going to be preaching to you about the trumpets of terror in 1883 the greatest volcanic explosion in modern history took place it happened at Krakatoa an island volcano off the Indonesian arc. and when Krakatoa erupted she shot soil and smoke and dust 24 miles up into the stratosphere the scientists tell us that the shockwave from that explosion passed over the earth seven times and that debris from the volcano fell as far away as Madagascar over 2,000 miles from Krakatoa. At the time of her explosion, though, there was an eyewitness sitting not too far off of the island. It was Captain Samson, pictured above. He was aboard the British vessel the Norham Castle. He was nearby, and in his personal journal, here is what he wrote about that terrible day. He said, quote, I am writing this blind in pitch darkness. We are under a continual rain of pumice and dust. So violent were the explosions that the eardrums of over half my crew were shattered. And then he continued, My last thoughts are with my dear wife And then he wrote these words, I am convinced the day of judgment has come. Now that terrible day in 1883 may have seemed like the end to those who witnessed it, but the Bible predicts that when God's judgment does strike the earth during the tribulation, that it is going to make Krakatoa seem like A Sunday picnic. That feeling of dread that our captain wrote about, that same experience will overtake the hearts of millions of people still on the earth living during that time we call the tribulation. As the writer in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 31 says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, one reason why the Bible is about 30% prophecy is because God wants us to know what is coming ahead so that we won't be unprepared. It is so gracious and kind of God to tell us about what is going to happen on the earth for those who reject His mercy and grace. It's like an advanced warning system. The book of Revelation alerts us to the fact that during the time of the tribulation, the earthquakes and plagues, war and famine, and yes, even meteor strikes will be part of God's judgment that He will pour out on the earth during those last days. But friend, there is good news today. The good news is that Jesus Christ has come. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He died in your place, took your punishment, rose from the grave on the third day, and if we believe and trust in Him, we can escape the wrath of God. We can seek refuge through God's sinless Son, Jesus Christ. For those of you visiting today, by way of reminder, let me point out that we've been preaching through the book of Revelation this year. We are in the tribulation period and have been since chapter 6 when Jesus took hold of that seven-sealed scroll in heaven, the title deed of the earth. Last week in chapter 7, We saw a brief parenthesis in the action. The Antichrist, war, famine, death, Christian martyrs and cataclysms have all hit the earth. Last week there was a parenthesis as God sealed 144,000 Jewish witnesses to go out and preach the gospel as they were supernaturally protected. And then we come now to Revelation 8. And here we are going to see Jesus open the last seal on that scroll... And as He does, there are going to be more judgments unleashed on the earth. In fact, you will notice that as we study the tribulation in its progression, the intensity of those judgments ratchets up, and things on earth will go from bad to worse. So today, we're going to see and hear the beginning of the trumpet judgments and what I call the trumpets of terror. Now, as I said before, this is a hellfire and brimstone message, even though I don't take pleasure in preaching that. It is the Word of God, and even if we don't like what the Word of God says, we have to heed it because it's for our benefit and our blessing. Before we see the trumpets blown, though, I want you to notice with me, number one, the calm in heaven. And you'll see this as we begin in verse 1 through 5. In Revelation 8, the calm in heaven. Notice what verse 1 says. Then the Lamb, that is Jesus Christ, opened the seventh seal. And there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. Now as we ended chapter 7, the chorus of praise that has rung from The throne of God has ceased, and now an eerie silence falls over heaven. Certainly, this is what you might call the calm before the storm. Actually, the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk, in his book, chapter 2, verse 20, alluded to this very moment when he wrote, But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. David Jeremiah has written a series of great books on Revelation. And in one of those commentaries, listen to what he says about heaven's silence in this moment. He said, quote, Before the next series of judgments unfold, there is a dramatic pause in heaven's activities. How can our limited minds understand the silence of heaven? It is as if the conductor's baton is raised and the orchestra is waiting for his signal to begin the overture. It's like catching your breath before diving into a cold pool or preparing to walk on stage before a thousand people. Sometimes, he wrote, silence can be deafening. Heaven stands in solemn anticipation of the awesome events that are to come. Friend, think about it. All the praise and the accolades and the shouting of the living creatures and the angels and the church and all of that (laughs) ceases in a moment there in heaven. And the focus turns now to the seven angels holding those seven trumpets and they are about to play their terrible dirge of death. This foreboding silence though as we read is now followed up by the actions of a special angel. Notice he's standing at heaven's golden altar, verse 3. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. And then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now you'll remember that in the Old Testament, one of the jobs of the priests who worked in the tabernacle was to stand before the altar outside the Holy of Holies and offer incense on it as a form of worship. But according to Psalm 141 and verse 2, those prayers were represented in the altar there as the incense wafted upward to God. Notice here that this angel possesses what is called the prayers of the saints. That's the prayers of the church, you and I. And those prayers are cast on the altar, and then fire is taken from that altar, and then thrown on the earth, and then we see those devastating results. Many commentators believe that the prayers offered here by the angel are linked with the imprecatory cries of the soul's who are martyred for Christ, they're under the altar in Revelation 6. We already met them. They have shed their blood. They have been martyred. And they cry out there, God, how much longer? When will you avenge our blood? And now that moment is about to happen. The angel's actions of throwing the the prayers of the saints down to the earth reveals to you and I that God's judgment is about to fall and the prayers of God's people for vindication and for righteousness and for justice are about to be answered. Think of it. For 2,000 years, Christians have prayed, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And now the moment has come for that prayer to be fulfilled. This ought to be an encouragement to you, child of God, to keep praying when our petitions line up with God's eternal decrees. What we have hoped for, what we have longed for, will become sight and become a reality. Child of God, listen to me today. The Heavenly Father has never lost track of a single one of your prayers. He always answers in His own time and in His own way. We, We cry out when we are abused or when we're treated unfairly here on this earth, when we are persecuted, when there are acts of evil done on the earth, we pray, God, why don't you intervene? God, why don't you do something? God, make your name known. Make your actions known. And friend, I'm telling you, this is the moment of all those prayers being fulfilled. We may not see God act immediately, but know this, friend. God's justice delayed is not God's justice denied. And the cumulative weight of the saints praying down through the centuries is going to be added to the scales of justice as God works now to right every wrong. The psalmist said it like this, You capture my tears in a bottle. Earlier on, In the book of Revelation, we saw that all the prayers of the saints are are captured in a vial and they're, they're let loose in heaven. Child of God, don't you stop praying for the kingdom of God. Don't you stop longing to see God's will be done on the earth because, friend, it's going to come to pass. The calm in heaven. Then we see the next movement of this passage, number two, the calamities on earth. So we go from calm to calamity. Now the opening of the last seal, which we already read of, is actually the beginning of the next seven judgments pictured in the trumpets held by those seven angels. So we see that the first six have already been opened. Jesus now opens the seventh. We see silence in heaven. And when Jesus opens the seventh, underneath that, is another bracket of seven more judgments called the trumpet judgment. And just like the seals, each time that an angel blows a trumpet, there's a corresponding judgment that takes place here on the earth. And in the Old Testament, the blowing of a trumpet was signaled to announce war. In fact, you'll remember one of the most famous battles in the Old Testament, the Battle of Jericho, was won when the people of God marched around the city, cried out, and then blew the trumpets, and the walls came down. These trumpets here play a similar role. They are actually announcing God's war machine as it's about to roll across the globe. Now, we only have time this morning in this chapter to look at the first four trumpet judgments. As we study these things, you are going to see three common traits among them. The first we could say is that they are all ecological judgments. I mean by that they directly affect the land and the sea and the fresh water and the skies. And then you're also going to see that secondly, not only are they ecological judgments, but they are partial judgments. You're going to notice that they affect one third of the planet's resources. And then third, you're also going to notice these are familiar judgments because they are very similar to the plagues that God sent upon Egypt in the book of Exodus. So, let's look in verse 6 and 7, and you'll notice the first trumpet. And when that is blown, it brings a blazing storm. Verse 6 and 7. Now, the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. Now this hail and fire that comes from the sky is reminiscent of the seventh plague that God sent on the fields of Egypt in the book of Exodus chapter 9. If you go and read the Old Testament prophet Joel, in his book, Joel 2 and verse 30, it says, And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke, alluding to this very judgment. Now, wrap your mind around this for just a moment. Imagine the ecological disaster that's going to take place on the earth as hail and fire beat down upon the earth and destroy the grass, and the forests. The cascading effects then will hit the food supply and the farmers' fields. And you can understand very quickly that the effects of this are going to be far-reaching and devastating. Dr. John MacArthur wrote about this very thing. Listen to what he said. The effects of such catastrophic fires would be widespread and devastating, including the destruction of crops, Death of animals on a massive scale, loss of wood for construction, and the pollution of watersheds. The environmental evolutionary pantheism that devalues man, elevates plants and animals, and ignores the Creator will be severely judged. He said, Earth Day that year will be a dismal affair. With a scorched earth, there will be little for the environmentalists to celebrate, and worse judgments are still to fall. So trumpet number one is a blazing storm. Trumpet number two announces the bloody seas. Notice this happening in verse 8. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Now, most scholars contend that John's flaming mountain in this passage is actually a great meteorite that is set ablaze when it enters earth's atmosphere. And this massive rock is going to impact the ocean and cause a third of the seas to turn to blood. Now, where have you seen this before? If you know your Old Testament, you recognize that this is an echo of the first plague that Moses performed against Egypt. In Exodus chapter 7, when he turned the Nile into crimson, turned it into blood. And this actually, as you read it, entails a triple judgment. A third of the sea will become blood. A third of marine life will die. And then a third of all ships on the sea will be destroyed. Does that... Bring difficulty to your imagination? How can we even put that into a reference that we know of? I was reading this week about an event that happened last year. I don't know if you remember this or not. I do. But on April the 17th, 2018, NASA reported that an asteroid the size of a football field passed by our planet. There's the headline. NASA missed a huge asteroid that passed unnervingly close to Earth. Do you remember this? They said in the article that scientists noted it just 21 hours before it gave Earth a surprise flyby. It was traveling at 66,000 miles an hour. They named it asteroid GE3, and it came within 119,000 miles of Earth, about half the distance to the moon. And you hear that and you say, well, that's pretty far away. But in space terms, that's really close. That's a brush. And astronomers noted that this asteroid that passed by was 3.6 times larger than the asteroid that hit uh, Russia and the Siberian forest in 1908 and destroyed hundreds and thousands of acres because of the fire. They said that if this asteroid would have hit The earth, it would have had 185 times more energy than the Hiroshima atomic bomb. Now friend, as you read this passage, is it unnerving to you that somewhere out in space right now is an asteroid that God has set to strike the earth during the tribulation? In fact, it's on its way right now. On a collision course with planet earth. John MacArthur wrote more about this in His commentary, he said, "...the impact will generate unimaginably huge tsunamis or tidal waves across the earth. Those giant waves will destroy thousands of vessels on the world's oceans, capsizing huge ocean-going cargo ships and completely swamping ports. The resulting disruption of commerce and transportation will cause ecological and economic chaos of unprecedented proportions." Can you imagine the fear and panic that's going to come over the human race when the sea turns to blood? How do you think that's going to smell when a third of all marine life, rotting fish, float to the surface? You won't be able to stand life here on the earth by the time the second trumpet is blown. The bloody sea, the blazing storm. But then, I also want you to see the third trumpet brings about... The bitter star. The bitter star. Read with me in verse 10. The angel blew his trumpet. And a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. And the name of the star is Wormwood. And a third of the waters became Wormwood. And many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. Every time I read this passage, I think about that verse in Psalm 147. And I believe in verse 4. Do you know what the Bible says there about God? That He determines the number of the stars and He calls them all by name. I can't help but think as I study this passage that somewhere out in our vast universe is a rock called Wormwood. It's been selected by God for this purpose right here. Now that name Wormwood... It's actually derived from a shrub that grows in the Middle East. And it has a root that secretes a a green oil. Distillers actually have found a way to turn the oil of that plant into a liquor. It's called absinthe. And in the original language, that name wormwood, it, it means bitterness or toxic or undrinkable. And apparently, what we can tell from the text is that Wormwood is a comet that, or a meteor that when it enters Earth's atmosphere, it breaks up into chunks and it rains down on the fresh bodies of water and it poisons them. Imagine all of Earth's rivers and the creeks and the streams and the lakes turning into cesspools. So toxic, more toxic than a Calcutta gutter. Many of you remember the blizzard of 93, don't you? Or maybe you remember one of the hurricanes that kind of blew through here and it knocked your power out. I remember when the blizzard of 93 happened, we were without power for three or four days. And because we had a well, that means that we didn't have water. I can remember Dad setting up the camp stove in the kitchen and we'd go out and shovel that snow and bring it in in buckets and we we boiled it and we used that for cooking and for whatever else we had to do. And you think about the hardship of that, and yet during the tribulation period, when a third of all the fresh water is undrinkable, people won't even be able to do that. And yet there'll be some who are so thirsty and so dehydrated, they'll have no choice but to drink the toxic water. And the Bible says many will die. But friend, it gets worse. Listen to the fourth trumpet judgment. The blackened sky the bitter star, and the bloody sea, and the blazing storm. Notice the blackened sky that happens in verse 12. And the fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light was darkened. And a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. So when this fourth trumpet sounds, we read about one-third of the reduction in the brightness of the sun, the moon, and the stars, which is exactly what you would expect when you have two huge asteroids or comets come and collide with the earth because when they make impact, tremendous plumes of smoke and debris are going to be jettisoned into the atmosphere. Think of the fires that are going to be raging across the earth. All this is going to blot out the light of the sun. You hear people talk about nuclear winter after the fallout of a war. And friend, this is a close parallel to that as all of that smoke and debris blots out the light of the sun. This is very similar to the ninth plague that God produced against Egypt in the book of Exodus chapter 10. And in Jesus' Olivet Discourse, listen to what He said about this in Luke 21. How terrible this time will be. He said there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars. And on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the seas and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Do you remember last year when we had that eclipse? And they made the big deal about the eclipse and everybody was going outside with their glasses to look at that. I remember standing out here on the front lawn of the church and I stepped outside and I looked and there was just an eerie darkness that came over there. It was in the middle of the day. In fact, Janice Singleton was here. And I stood out there and we washed it together. And I thought about this and my skin started to get goosebumps. Because I thought about, God, what are you going to do on this earth one day when a third of the light is dashed And people's hearts will grow hard against you, and yet they will know the truth to turn to Jesus, but they won't do it. And you know, as this passage closes up here, we read that the stars will grow dark, and the sun and the moon will grow dark, and there will be blackness all across the earth. You know, there was blackness another day, Some 2,000 years ago on Golgotha's hill as the Son of God hung there between heaven and earth on an old Roman cross and He cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my Lord, my Lord, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus Christ was forsaken there on the cross. Accursed, vile, killed as a thief and as His blood dripped down that cross, it was an atoning sacrifice for you and for me. And the skies were darkened Because the Son of God was giving His very life so that you and I wouldn't have to face the justice of God. Why wouldn't you want Jesus? If you don't know Him today, what are you holding out on? What are you waiting for? You know what's interesting about this? A preacher can stand up and preach this with his guts and people yawn and think big deal and yet the weatherman can get on the news and talk to us about four inches of snow and we lose our minds and go to the gas station and the grocery store and yet a preacher tells about the wrath of God that is coming to sinners and they just sit there blank faced like a calf staring at a new gate. I'm going to tell you what friend, if I didn't know Jesus Christ today is my Lord and Savior and I know that this was coming on the earth, friend, I would run and I would baseball slide to the altar so I could get mercy and grace from God. Because you don't want to be here on this earth when this stuff starts happening. And I don't know how to tell you any other way than to say, I love you with all of my heart and Jesus loves you and nobody in this room should go to hell. Nobody in this room should suffer these judgments because Jesus bled and Jesus died to give you mercy and grace so that you wouldn't have to face these terrible days on the earth. And this darkening sky is going to provide an ominous backdrop for one messenger to pass across the earth. Read what happens. Verse 13, Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying, with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. My goodness. Many commentators believe that this eagle-like creature is the, one of the four living creatures that we already saw in chapter 4 there in the throne room of God. And now he gives a triple announcement of woe to those who are left standing here on the earth to tell them, look, it's bad news if you've lived this far because there's still three more trumpet judgments and they're going to be worse than the first four. So you had better bow your knee to God. You know, I studied this chapter and I thought about how prideful man is. I was reminded how we take for granted God's good creation. God doesn't have to give you the next heartbeat. God doesn't have to give you clean air to breathe. God could have seen fit to have you born in a country where there was no good drinking water or where there was no electricity or where you didn't have modern amenities like we have today. Think of our good creation, how God has put it all together. The trees take our carbon dioxide and they turn it into oxygen that we can breathe. There's lumber for building. There's pulp for paper. Some trees produce fruit. We can all say amen about an apple pie, can't we? (laughs) The earth, the earth is so fertile. I've been tilling up ground this spring. I am so excited about watching my garden grow. Let Let me ask you something. Who taught the seed to grow up? How come it is you can put a corn seed or a tater or beans in the ground and it just knows to grow up? God taught it. God's intelligence in the creation. Think about the ocean. The ocean is teeming with all kinds of marine life. And I've seen some of you down at Harbor End. I know you say amen about shrimp and flounder. Think about the sun and the moon and the stars. You walk outside, at night it's so beautiful. God knows all those stars by name. He hung them all in their orbits to give man warmth and regularity and guidance. And God is so good in His creation. And yet we see here in these first four trumpets, what is God doing? God is taking away all of the goodness of creation that man has taken for granted and that man would scarce bow his knee and say, Thank you, God, for giving me good water to drink. Thank you, God, for the sun that hangs over my head. Thank you, God, for something good to eat. And all God has to do, you you think we're so intelligent. You think we're so advanced as a society. All God has to do is take His protective hand off of this earth and a little bit of chaos comes in. Friends, I don't know how to say it to you any more than this. You do not want to be left behind on this earth when this stuff starts to happen, you want to be watching it from the mezzanine in heaven with Christ and His church. You may not live to see these days, but if you do and you have rejected Christ, oh, friend, the only thing to do is to say what the angel said here, "Woe, woe, woe on the inhabitants of the earth. So what's the application of this? There's two of them. Number one, the fear of God. You ought to fear the holiness and the wrath of this mighty God who one day is going to say, it's enough. I've had enough of sin. I've had enough of Satan. I've had enough of man clenching his fist at me. It's time to take back the earth for it is mine. And we ought to fear this holy and righteous God, this just judge who's going to bring judgment against a world who hates Him. You say, well, that's not fair. I'll tell you what's not fair. Grace isn't fair. The cross isn't fair. Jesus Christ dying for you and me. That's not fair. But that's God's salvation plan. And if you embrace Him, if you accept Him, if you repent of your sin, you can be washed and made clean. You can be made righteous today. You can have your sin record thrown out. You can be given the holiness and the goodness of Jesus Christ. And friend, you can sing a new song today, redeemed, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. That's not fair, but grace ain't fair. Because that's what, when you don't get what you deserve. And you do get what you could never earn and don't deserve. I don't deserve heaven and neither do you. But Jesus says it can happen. And there's a second application as I close. And this is for the redeemed. If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, when you read a passage like this, you know what it ought to do? It ought to light a fire in each one of us. We should be faithful witnesses to our friends, our loved ones, our coworkers, our neighbors, because, friend, the sand in the hourglass is running out, and the time is coming nigh when Jesus Christ is coming back, and we have a gospel to declare to a lost and dying world. I'm closed with this today. There are so many incredible stories of heroism and courage that took place on the worst day in our nation's history, September 11, 2001. One of those stories that has been told and retold is about the man in the red bandana. Listen to this. Wells Crowther was a 24-year-old rookie trader who died in the terrorist attack on the World Trade Center in 2001. He is known today as the man in the red bandana. He wore it as a protective mask as he rescued people from the South Tower before it collapsed. The story goes that when Wells was a little boy, he was given a bandana by his daddy. His daddy was a firefighter and he wanted to be just like his dad and so he carried that bandana everywhere he went. He carried it with him to college where he played lacrosse at Boston College. He carried it with him on his first job. He was working on the 104th floor of the South Tower on September 11th when the United Airlines Flight 175 hit the building. He called his mom. And he said, Mama, don't you worry about me. I'm okay. He was never heard from again. His mama, Miss Crowther, when she watched that, she said as she saw the tower crumbling, her mother's instinct took over and she said, I knew Wells wasn't going to make it. It took six months for them to exhume the remains of her son from the debris of that building. And she searched and searched for hope and and stories of what might have happened to her son in the last hours. Memorial Day 2002, she opened up the newspaper and she read an article about those who were rescued from the falling building that day. And many of those eyewitnesses described a a young man wearing a red bandana who helped people find their way out. Wells is credited with helping at least 12 people escape the tower. He would find them and then he would guide them to the stairwell and walk them down where the firefighters would meet and then he would walk back up and go get somebody else and he did this a dozen times and 12 people were rescued by his efforts. One survivor, Judy Ween, remembered Wells' words as he grabbed her by the hand. He said, quote, I have found a way out. Follow me. His body was later discovered beside the bodies of other New York City firefighters. And friends, that is the application of a passage like this. One day, this world is going to crumble. The sky is going to fall. The skyscrapers of the world will be brought down. But right now, as God's people and as God's church, we have a little bit of time to grab people by the hand, our lost friends, neighbors, and loved ones, and say, I have found a way out. His name is Jesus Christ. Go to Him and you'll find mercy and grace. Go to Him you'll find healing and restoration. Go to Him and you'll find refuge from the wrath that is to come. Vance Havner said this, and I'm done. He said, quote, The real test of how much we believe prophetic truth is what we are doing to warn men to flee from the wrath that is to come to believe the solemn truths of prophecy and then make our way complacently through a world slated for demolition is not just unfortunate. He said it's criminal. You're the only Jesus that somebody's going to see. Because they don't come to church. They're not interested in the things of God. They will sit beside you at school. They live beside you. They work beside you. And friend, we've got the only way that they can be saved. And so we ought to be doing all that we can to tell them that there is hope. There is a way out. We have found it. It's one way. He said, I am the door. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life.